mean, this was a campaign speech full of dishonest partisan rhetoric with a afterthought brief nod uh, to his constitutional obligations. A good metaphor for his presidency, if I might add. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Joe Biden saying the State of the Union very, very loudly is strong. Joe Arnold here with Flyover Country with Scott Jennings and Sean Southerd is here for our immediate reaction here morning after the State of the Union. Good morning, guys. Hey Joe. Morning, folks. Greetings from the big greetings from the Big Apple. Sean and I back now. in back in our old <laughs> Kentucky home. Scott is uh Scott's kind of licking his wounds after kind of a bizarre night on CNN and every other cable network. Scott, I I, I don't know. It's just like it, it seemed like uh, your the panel the rest of your panel was watching a far different speech than the one you were watching. Yeah, I was uh I was uh 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 one man against the world last night, I think, uh trying to do a little commentary on the president's speech. I mean, look, this was a speech for Democrats, and it's no surprise that Democrats and, and people who prefer Democrats would, would like it. Most of the viewers were Democrats, if you look at the snap polls after the election, after the speech, rather. And so, I mean, it was a speech for partisan Democrats. But you know why Joe Biden had to do that, because the pre-speech polling, 60 percent of Democrats don't want him to run or they don't want him to be the party's nominee. So he is still very much launching a reelection campaign, trying to shore up his base. Nancy Pelosi on CNN was right. If he runs, he'll be the nominee. But simply uh, forcing everyone into it or dragging everyone into it or backing into it is not good enough. And so I think that speech last night was designed to try to rally his own party. I have a lot of thoughts about the theme and others, but Sean, I'm interested in your your commentary as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it was aimed mostly at a Democrat audience. He did talk about the few of the bipartisan accomplishments, but at the same time, it was a speech that didn't seem to recognize the fact that the chambers of Congress have changed. Uh, it was like he was speaking to Democrats saying we need to finish the job over and over, not recognizing that the American people voted and sent divided government back uh to him. And so it just it seems weird to me that it, he he is trying to ignore reality, but I think for the reasons that you pointed out, Scott, he's trying to to cobble together and maintain his support within the Democrat party. I mean, as as he was going into this speech, even representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was like, "Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll support him if he's the nominee." You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of consternation under uh under the uh under here uh, under the current about What's going on within the Democrat Party and how they feel about him, largely, I think, because of his age. Yeah, the the uh, AOC clip uh, from right before – I mean it was right before the speech started, and Dana Bash grabbed uh, Ocasio-Cortez in the hallway, and it was the least ringing endorsement you could possibly give a politician. I mean, she, You're right. She said she would support Joe Biden if he's the Democrat nominee. Well, I assume she's going to support – uh, no, any Democrat <laughs> over a Republican. And so that was it was really a I mean, I, I was kind of floored. I, I was sitting there on the set with my fellow commentators and everybody was just sort of floored by how tepid uh, she was and how she treated Joe Biden literally minutes before he was due to enter the, the chamber there. It was really. But but if you look at the polling, 
she probably is more representative of where Democrats are uh, than where B- Biden wants them to be. I mean, they're not into this. They're just not into this anymore. Uh, and this whole idea, Joe, of the theme of finish the job. Well, I mean, what was the job? I mean, that, that's really the question. And I think we've talked about this before. The job was to get rid of Donald Trump. That, that job is finished. I think the mistake he makes is that people are clamoring for more of the policies that he's been implementing. His policies are not popular. The American people do not like what he's doing. They do not want him to finish the job. They've had quite enough. The CBS News survey asking Americans uh, how to describe the State of the Union, what words would you use? The top three words were divided, declining, weak. Why in the world would you ask the American people to finish the job if they think that's the track we're on? So I I think this thing is not ready for a reelection campaign. Candidly, Democrats are begrudgingly going to go along with it. But you can you can really hear a real trepidation in a lot of Democrats, especially the younger ones, about what's about to happen. They're going to nominate a guy who'd be 86 at the end of his second term. To restore the soul of this nation, to rebuild the backbone of America, America's middle class, and to unite the country. We've been sent here to finish the job. Let's finish the job this time. Let's cap the cost of insulin for everybody at $35. As you meet the press, a little montage of finish the job. Uh, you know, you're talking about, Scott, uh, you know, the actually the, the electoral, the primary uh, election considerations of all this, but... So that's number one. So he succeeded. I mean, he certainly got the the base fired up on your panel and and other, you know, across the the country. And for that matter, I mean, isn't that enough? I mean, he won the election last time. He had enough of the Democratic base fired up. He has to get them on his side. As I I guess what it boils down to is what's the alternative? Well, there is no alternative. I mean, that's what Pelosi was saying. If he runs, he'll be the nominee. And she's she's right. The question is, is that what his party wants and is that what the American people want? And if you try to I mean, anybody out there have a dog? If you try to give a dog dog food that they don't want uh, and they're not hungry for, they're not going to eat it. If the dogs don't eat the dog food, it doesn't matter how good the slogans and the advertising is if the dogs don't like it. That's the real question for this campaign. What is the rationale for another four years? The rationale in 20 was very clear. I'm not as crazy as Bernie Sanders and I have the kind of. Uh, persona that can get rid of Donald Trump. That that was the rationale for the campaign. That's it. That was really it. But he this is, time around, though, we don't we, we we don't have a rationale for the campaign that matches political reality. He's saying finish the job. The American people are saying no more. This is like in Looney Tunes when you had Pepe Le Pew, you know, hugging the cat and the cat desperately trying to get away, and Pepe Le Pew is kissing the cat. And thinking the cat loves him and the cat cannot get away from the skunk fast enough. That's what this feels like to me. Yeah, I think I think that imagery, Scott, is going to be with all of us for a very long time as you painted that picture for us. But I think that I think that you're right in that that to go back to what I was saying earlier, it's not there's no mandate for him to continue doing what he's been doing, which is spend money like there's no tomorrow. I mean. Have we not had enough inflation? I mean, they they just continue to want to spend, and it's it's just it's just ridiculous. It doesn't reflect the political realities of the situation. You know, the section, Joe, to Sean's point, the section on the debt, which I thought was kind of galling, 
was when he talked about how much the national debt had gone up under the Trump administration. And what he glosses over in that chamber is that most of it was due to COVID relief. And every Democrat who was in Congress during the Trump administration, which is most of them sitting in there, wanted it, clamored for it, and voted for it. And for him to kind of just glide over the fact that COVID happened, both parties agreed that we had to spend money to keep people afloat. People, by the way, who had their jobs and their lives essentially canceled Deficits, for a couple no of years by, Dem by Democrats. I guess we'll hear Joe Biden in a minute. Uh, you know, see so it. See it. See it. Democrats clamoring to close down our country and our economy, then Democrats clamoring to spend money on it, and then he has the audacity to blame Republicans for a major spike in the national debt. It's just, it's dishonest. It's really dishonest. And I, and 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 throughout this speech, his words on entitlement reform, his words on debt. You know, even his his little riff on the McDonald's cashiers about some some crazy story about them not being able to work at a different burger place. It's a thousand percent false. It's just not true. This is another thing that plagues Biden. He he just can't get through an entire speech without it being dragged down by blatant, slippery falsehoods. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. Listen to that. Check it out. I mean, that, that, I mean, that right there, to gloss over that and to gloss over COVID, because, you know, he leans on COVID, Sean and Joe, for everything else. You know, he leans on the COVID emergency for a lot of his executive actions. He leaned on COVID for the need for the two reconciliation bills. He leans on COVID when it's useful to him. But he conveniently forgets COVID and the political reality in this country when it's when he wants to make a point about the day. I just I just find this well, to be maddening and, and dishonest. And and the Democrats wanted to spend more. Like yeah. they they wanted to spend more. And so, like, you know, can we talk about you know, this is the same guy that said that before he took office, there was no vaccine. OK. And. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, other the Trump administration started the the vaccine stuff. And so, like, he, he keeps trying to have it both ways. Oh, I don't want to take the blame for any of the covid spending that happened under the previous administration, but I'm going to take all the credit for, for the vaccine and, and other stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Check it out. Definitely. He says, call my office, too, right? Let's, let, let's go to the Social Security, since we mentioned a couple different times here. This, this of course, I want to get your guys' uh, reaction, not just to what Biden did, but how the Republicans reacted. And what I think was not just scripted, it was almost as if Biden's speechwriters knew exactly how Republicans would respond. And respond, and, and the Republicans in the chamber, uh, you know, basically were central casting. They completely fell into that trap. Take the economy hostage, I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. 
Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means that if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. So this is, I mean, this is the back and forth. And of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the one yelling, you're a liar, liar on the floor of the House. That, of course, was something which talked about a lot uh, after that was over. And kind of going back to the the first time you lie was was, uh, was uttered on the floor of the House during Barack Obama's presidency. And, and that representative was censured as, as a result. This obviously was, as I said before, this was scripted. And I think the Republicans, again, fell into a trap here and they were goaded into doing this. Now, uh, do I think that Joe Biden is being uh, honest about his presentation? Absolutely not. I think that's but at the same time, Scott, from an effective standpoint and a speech device, don't you think the president succeeded here? I don't. I, I totally we I know we were texting while this was going on. I totally disagree with you. First of all. The most dishonest part about this is that both Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, who are the leaders of their party in both chambers, have unequivocally stated they'll not be cutting Social Security and Medicare. Both of them have unequivocally stated they do not support the Rick Scott plan. What Biden is referencing is Florida Senator Rick Scott's plan to sunset all federal programs every five years. That's that's what they're underpinning this attack on. So let's do it. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. Democrats go insane when Republicans say, oh, you all want to defund the police. And they go crazy trying to defend that when Biden himself has said, I don't want to defund the police. They get really mad at Republicans for taking the words of the most fringe gadflies and applying them to Biden. So what does Biden do? He shows up at the State of the Union and applies the words of a fringe gadfly, Rick Scott, and tries to say that's the position of the party. Then they get into this back and forth. Oh, I guess we all agree. They already agree. There were no conversions. The Republican Party is not going to cut entitlements. They never were. There's a gadfly that for some reason is running for re-election to the Senate in Florida on the idea of getting rid of Social Security and Medicare. That's his choice. The choice of the party and the choice of the party leadership clearly stated, even McCarthy in the video he made on Monday, clearly stated, we are not interested in cutting entitlements. Yet Biden continues to apply the Scott logic to the whole party. I find this dishonest. It's maddening. And now here's the question. If Joe Biden is really an honest man, which he's not, but if he were, how about a pledge from his campaign? that they won't run any ads about Social Security or Medicare cuts in 2024 because, you know, they make up most of Democratic advertising in a federal campaign year. If he were serious about what he did at the State of the Union, he'd say, OK, I will promise not to run false ads against Republicans claiming they want to cut entitlements. But you know what? He won't make that promise because that's exactly what they're going to do. That's why this moment to me is, is meaningless, because ultimately Democrats are going to run the same campaign they always run. Claiming Republicans want to make cuts they don't actually want to make. They can look back, though, and I'll get Sean's reaction to this. The rest of the clip, of course, is then he says, then, OK, fine. Then stand up and, and join me then in, in declaring your pledge that you're not going to cut this. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, 
folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks, I mean, let me, let me hold on, hold on, hold on. So so what he was saying, what he was saying was that Republicans are saying they won't increase the debt ceiling unless we cut Social Security and Medicare. Exactly. That, that was which is which is no, not a single person, even Rick Scott, has said that that is their position. So he creates this false, this straw man. You know, you know. Well, there's some people saying it. I mean, that's what Trump used to do. Many people are saying he creates a straw man and then gets everybody to say, uh, "I don't believe in that," and then somehow declares victory over the straw man because I, 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 this was so dishonest. And everybody on TV last night is like, "Oh, he's a genius." I mean, does being blatantly dishonest make you a genius? Is that the bar? I thought being blatantly dishonest was disqualifying. That's what we said during Trump. Now we're celebrating dishonesty as genius. It's outrageous. Sean. Well, I just I just think that, you know, it just it shows how political he is. And I think goes to the heart of the speech. It was a political speech aimed at at elevating himself amongst Democrats using using things like this that are not on the table for this current discussion as it relates to increasing the debt ceiling as as a way to use it as a political cudgel against his enemies. I mean, that's what this is. And that's typical Joe Biden is taking these ideas and using them as a political cudgel against his enemies. And I think it I think it really is a shame because when you look at the way that Joe Biden campaigned and tried to present himself as a moderate, I wasn't one of these people. But I think that there were some Republicans that were like, oh, well, you know, Joe, Joe's been around a while and maybe he'll be able to go there and get some deals done on, on some of these major problems facing the country. And he'll be this transition president and uh, he'll be able to rise above the political fray. Well, here he is weaponizing things and misconstruing the Republican position when the Speaker of the House who's sitting right behind him was in a meeting and saying, we're not going to do that. I mean, it's just it's just it's bad. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the off the books now. Right? They're not to be fine. So my point with all this, Scott, is, again, I I agree with you and Sean that this is blatantly dishonest. It is uh, intellectually dishonest. It, he, he knows what he's doing. It's it's not the bar to, to set. He's matching a bar that you pointed out before that Trump would do the same thing. My point is, I think it's effective and especially for the audience that he's trying to go for. Because he's completely and and it's not only for that is that he's, he's getting Republicans to play the role that that how Democrats see Republicans and how Demo- and how Democrats want independents to see Republicans. Well, sure. Because ultimately, Joe, his, his Joe. I'm, yes. I, I mean, OK, let me ask you a question. Do you believe yeah. that murder is bad? Do you believe that murder is wrong? I do. OK, well, I'm glad today that on this podcast we've agreed that I have. I have prevented you from murdering a long list of people that I saw you per- produce again, earlier. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name. Right. I'm not going to name names. But just so we're clear, I prevented you from committing a series of murders. This is how this works. I mean, do you think people really disagree fall for with this? you? I don't. This and, it's ridiculous. I, it's intellectually the, dishonest. But I'm saying is, from as a device and a speech is my only point. And I'm and maybe I'm 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 not again saying that I think that he. Do I think? 
that he convinced Republicans last night not to kill Social Security. Of course not. They weren't going to do it in the first place. My point being is, is that the narrative that is that, that, that all the networks and the coverage and the party and the presidency is is advancing is one that was reinforced by the speech last night. And if, and if, you're, and if you're not as paying enough attention, you know, or, or know the difference. I think that he's using the bully pulpit very effectively, dishonestly, yes, but but effectively. I think that Joe raises a good point, which is that the liberal echo chamber that is the media that reacted to this speech last night and praised this as some sort of groundbreaking moment where Joe Biden got the Republicans to agree to this when the same thing is true today as it was on Monday. I mean, that's I mean, sure, Joe, there's this liberal echo chamber that exists out there in the cable news system where people are like, oh, my gosh, look at this moment. And we're being told that Biden got back to the White House and he got high fives from Ron Klain about this because this was one of the greatest moments in all of State of the Union history. And it's like he lied. And so like, I don't agree like the, the way that these people reacted, the Republicans reacted and, and shouted at him. I think that Congressman Comer uh, had a really good point on, on uh, the evening edition of Meet the Press Last night reacting is that we should have go back to decorum in the chamber, but decorum goes both ways too. The president of the United States should not be lying about the Republican position on things from the podium when the guy that he's negotiating with is right behind him. I think that's right, and I and I appreciated uh, Congressman Comer uh, pointing that out. And uh, and again, I I, I find I, I I don't know if it makes makes sense to you guys, but I said in our, in our text chain last night, which is entertaining in and of itself. I find, you know, to your point earlier, Scott, you know, Joe Biden was elected, A, because he wasn't Trump and because people wanted to get back to normal. You know, he, he wanted to be a unifier. I find him to be a passive aggressive unifier. In other words, he's it's it's very patronizing. It's very performative. Um, but ultimately, it's not sincere. And but at the same time, it's effective when you when you're appealing to the base, which he has to appeal to because of the primary if there's not a primary, but for him to secure the, the you know, the uh, the nomination for reelection. Well, I'm just glad you brought this topic up so that we could prevent what was sure to be a murderous rampage you were going to go on throughout your neighborhood. I mean, I just think me being able to rhetorically prevent you from this is vital work that we, we should, did on the podcast. We should actually morning. we should actually, Scott, write a few columns for newspapers around the state praising you for your leadership and preventing Joe from committing these murders <laughs> because <laughs> And maybe and maybe get oh, you on man. TV to talk about how this is a great success that, you know, on Monday, Joe is going to rage around and kill a bunch of people. But you stopped him. Yeah. <laughs> on uh, your network last night, Scott, uh, they, there was an immediate uh, poll, flash poll. And uh, is it David? Sh- uh, how do you pronounce his last name again? Just Sh- Shalian? Shalian. Yeah, David Shalian, Shalian. Our, our political director. Yeah. Uh, talked about, you know, and he, he first of all, I'll, I'll give him props. He did acknowledge off the top. He said, generally speaking, a, a state of the union speech is going to be watched more by people of the same party as the president than not. And so this is going to be skewed as a result of all that. But he said a 72 percent majority of Americans who watched the speech had a positive reaction. What's your take on that? Yeah, um, it was interesting. Compared to the last couple of years, it was exactly in line. His speech was right where it was among speech watchers uh, on the previous two, so no measurable improvement. And it was below how people felt about Trump's uh, speeches and about Obama and even about Bush. So, you know, it's what you would expect. A partisan Democrat audience watched this speech, just like when Trump was president, a partisan Republican audience watched the speech. So if you take a poll among a partisan audience and ask them if they like 
what the president of their own party had to say, you're generally going to get good marks. So I, I didn't find any of the polling to be surprising or out of line. But the point about who's watching is really critical. CBS News survey before the speech <clears throat> confirmed this. Uh, partisan Democrats were far more likely to say they were going to watch than partisan Republicans. So I don't put a ton of stock into these post-speech snap polls, uh, but it, it was it was pretty much in line with what I had expected. And frankly, you know, had it been any worse, it would have been probably more concerning for Biden. I mean, you know, you you would expect that your own party would support uh, what you have to say in a speech like this. And they and they basically did. I was looking at the uh, some of the numbers that CNN released there, and I guess Clinton and Trump are the two that had the highest, very positive results after their respective speeches. Yeah, I, I do think over the years, by the way, I'd, I'd love to see some analysis on this. I get the feeling that over the years, well, hey, we do know this. The state, the viewership of the State of the Union has declined. A, B, and I think it as it has declined, um, the audience has gotten more partisan. And as the country has gotten more polarized, you just have fewer Republicans who want to listen to Joe Biden talk for an hour and a half. And you certainly had virtually no Democrats who wanted to listen to Donald Trump talk for an hour and a half. And so and so it's like the speech has become less about the country and more about a partisan audience. And that's why Biden's speech was largely being interpreted last night as essentially a preview of his whole campaign. Finish the job. I mean, he only got to State of the Union in the last paragraph. And then he, you know, he he offhandedly said, I'm here to give you a report on the State of the Union. It's strong. I mean, it was an afterthought. I mean, this was a campaign speech full of dishonest partisan rhetoric with a afterthought brief nod uh, to his constitutional obligations. A good metaphor for his presidency, if I might add. And so that's what it was. And that's what this speech has become. And uh, and. And, you know, it's kind of I kind of regret that. I, I, I think if you're there to do something the Constitution asks you to do, that ought to be right up front. It ought to be the main reason you're there. The main reason Joe Biden was there was to send a thrill up the leg of, you know, Democrat commentators, which I guess he succeeded at. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is he says the State of the Union is strong. And as we've discussed and at ad nauseum, it just people do not feel that. I mean, the polling that's come out on this shows that like 18 percent agrees with him that the state of the union is strong. And so it just it does not reflect reality. Um, I, my, my, my question to you all, and I think, Scott, you raise a really interesting point about, you know, the audience of this shifting over the years is do you think that do you think that like people actually in middle America like watch this speech like like for when, when I was growing up, like we didn't we didn't have the State of the Union like we didn't like sit around and watch it. I mean, we had it, of course, the president addressed the nation. But like we didn't sit, you know, in February and, and watch the president's address. Do you think that it's become more of a kind of coastal like political insider thing where people watch and react to it? Uh, I think it. I think. Well, if you look at it, we could probably pull this up, Joe. I, I think it's one of the most watched television programs of the year. To the extent that anything is now widely watched, I mean, the diffusion of of consuming video content like this uh, means that things that you know used to be watched by 60 million people are now watched by 30 million people or 20 million people. So yeah, I do I do think people watch it, but I think what we know is that you're far more likely to watch it wherever you are on the coast or in Middle America if you happen to be a partisan who likes that your party is in power. That, that that's the most predictive thing about whether you'll watch it or not. 
but you know what 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 else was on TV last night? We, you know we we're in Kentucky. Kentucky played Arkansas last night at nine o'clock. I mean, how many people in Kentucky do you think wanted to watch Kentucky Arkansas or watch the president's speech? So right. I think in in spot, I, you know, I think a lot of people were following LeBron James last night in his quest to become the NBA all-time leading scorer. How many folks do you think were following that rather than the speech? So I, I do think that that the partisanship of the of the particular viewer matters, uh, and, and that's what you get. I mean, that's what you get in terms of watching the speech. And look, that's why you get the speeches that you get. They're written in a partisan way or in a campaign way because they know that's who's watching. Joe, you were in television for a long time. I mean, do you, do you agree with that assessment that the – the polarization of the viewership has no. shaped or, or or molded the way we get the State of the Union now? Well, absolutely. And it, and it goes back to what my point was about why I thought that the president succeeded last night is because the point of it was to rally his base. It was red meat. It was it was Republicans were there to play a role for the sake of what was basically a Democratic National Convention speech. You know, and and so I, absolutely. And this this is. We, we, you know, you set up, it's like, it's, it's like if you were watching a Super Bowl and you're able to watch only like, like your local announcers giving it for the, for that team versus, um, you know, you know, for lack of better words, an, an objective view of the, of the game. You know, absolutely. This is, this is something which has become more and more partisan. I don't know. Has it well, ever been think, nonpartisan though? Well, Joe, I think, I think your point about the speech being designed to rally Democrats is correct. I mean, I think. You know, 30 years ago, you would have thought of the audience. And if you're sitting down to write a speech, you always think of this first. What is the audience I'm talking to? Who are the people I'm talking to? So you would have thought of the audience as the American people. Last night, I got the feeling, and I think that this is what you were saying, and it's true, that they just said, well, the audience is Democrats. That's the only thing we have to worry about here is Democrats. And I just that's not that's just not how I think of the State of the Union. It's in the Constitution that you have to do it. And so I, I find it to be a misappropriation of what the purpose of the speech is. But I also think that when you're trying to analyze it, you know, we bounce back and forth. It's like, well, how was the speech? Was the speech good? Well, I don't know. If, if you're talking about, you know, was it effective at changing public opinion among the American people? No, I don't think it was good. If you're talking about, is this something the Democrats would like? Well, yeah, I guess I guess it was good because. That was the point of it. I think if you look at it through the lens of was this effective at talking to the American people, I just think Sean was making this point, and and it's correct. We're talking past each other. Joe Biden is saying, finish the job. The State of the Union is strong. You know, we're on the right track. The American people are saying we're divided. We're declining. We're weak. Your economic policies are failing, and we want somebody else. They're just talking past each other. And I unfortunately believe this is an exemplar of what our politics has become, people just talking past each other. And whether they recognize they're talking past each other or not, it's there's no conversation. You talk, I talk, we talk past each other, and then we move on. There's really no give and take. There's really no give and take. And and when you, Joe, I think correctly analyze this speech was designed for Democrats, you know, I mean – I mean, does this president not feel any responsibility to communicate with the with the rest of the country, over half the country, who believes his policies are actively hurting them? I mean, I, I find that to be fairly pathetic, honestly, and it, it's disappointing. We're not talking past each other last night. We were 
yelling past each other. In the past two years, democracies have become stronger, not weaker. Autocracy has grown weaker, not stronger. Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping. Name me one. Name me one. Yeah, that that part of the speech was I don't think that was actually in the text. I was following along and I, I think he ad libbed that and it was weird. And by the way, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, presidents or dictators of very small third world countries who would gladly trade places <laughs> with Xi Jinping. I mean, I mean, it was also kind of rhetorically just sort of bizarre. Like, what what point are you trying to make? Um, I, I that was weird there. He had a couple of moments where he did some yelling just out of nowhere. I, I, he does this sometimes. He sometimes he yells. Then sometimes he does the creepy whisper. Oh, the whispering of the microphone's the worst. Let me let me let me yeah. come right here. I'm going to tell you this is why we all believe. And I mean, yeah. it is really bizarre. But I think he thinks those devices are somehow like put emphasis on a point or draw more like here's here's. Here's what you really need to hear. And I'm going to you're going to know that this is the main point because I'm going to whisper it or I'm going to yell it. And it and all we we end up doing is is just focusing on the 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 creepiness of it. So I I mean, look, a lot a lot of politicians have weird speech tics. I mean, a lot lot of people have phrases they fall back on or little nervous tics. I guess that's part of what he has. But it, it is it's a little strange when he goes into yelling mode. Well, the other thing is it's, it's hubris, and it goes back to the echo chamber nature of it. Because it, once he believes he has the people he's communicating with in the palm of his hand, he's going to keep doing it. It's 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 um, uh, indulgent, you know. It's self indulgent is to say I was I'm enjoying this so much. I'm really getting kind of getting to the heart of things. I'm going to keep doing it. Well, one thing a, a Democrat mentioned to me last night um, off the air, not on the air, but was to, I, I think comfort in that building puts Joe Biden in a weird place. Like he is so comfortable in the Capitol. And so he gets in there and, and you, and you can see, you know, indulgent, like, you know, it's not a, it's not an unfamiliar place. He gets real comfortable when he's in that building. And so you get some of that indulgence, I think, in some of his speech devices, you know, Trump, I don't think was ever all that comfortable in there. Although I think Trump's state of the union nights were actually some of his better nights. I thought, the speeches were fine and, and his delivery was fine. I mean, maybe he was jumping over a low bar, but I always thought his his State of the Union uh, nights were, were good for him. Um, I don't know that you know they ultimately didn't help him get reelected, but but on balance they were they were a lot better days than than some of the other days he had in office. Took a long time to get to the Republican uh, response uh, on Tuesday night because Joe Biden spent about a half an hour in the uh, the well of the House talking to people on the way out including some former Supreme Court justices, a lot of people who are lined up uh, to, to talk. I don't think George Santos stuck around to see if he can shake his hand afterward, like he did on the way in when Mitt Romney apparently gave him a beat down and said, told him he, he belonged in the back of the chamber. Um, let me, uh, before we head off here, though, I, I do want to talk about the, our, the, uh, the response and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And while you reap the consequences of their failures, the Biden administration seems more interested in woke fantasies than the hard reality Americans face every day. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace. But we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. 
Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. All while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is, your freedom of speech. Sean, what do you think about that Sarah is- Huckabee Sanders last night? I mean, I thought it was the perfect framing for the generational argument that that they were trying to make and that I think the voters want. I mean, when you look at the, the voting uh, sentiment on on both Biden and Trump and Scott's talked about this extensively on cable television and elsewhere is that, you know, there, there's a thirst out there for a generational change in leadership and um, at least on the part of, of some voters. And so I think that, you know, it's it's interesting that she went that way. I think that, you know, the, the culture war argument is is important to Republicans. And so in a lot of ways, I think it was a nod to the, to the base, uh, like Biden's speech was all about his base. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, it's going to be what we expect from these response videos. Scott, I, I, I thought Sarah perfectly encapsulated how the average Republican feels about our culture. I mean, they you know, I think the average Republican feels surrounded. You know, every institution in this country seems to be geared toward stripping away uh, and eroding values that, uh, you know, to a Republican are fundamentally American, but we're now made to feel bad about. I thought she really encapsulated that. Now, whether that is an effective message for the broader electorate, I don't know. But that right, her explanation for how the average Republican feels about things in this country right now, culturally, I, I thought was was right on. Uh, some of my Democratic sparring partners were arguing that, you know, oh, it was too partisan. You know, she was just talking to her base. Well, I mean, who was Joe Biden talking to? You know, right. I mean, his speech was was overtly partisan as well. So I, I thought but I thought she she nailed it. Uh, if you were looking for an explanation of how the Republicans feel, she nailed it. The most important thing she did, Joe, was talk about the need for generational change in this country. And I and I think all the issues aside, the laundry lists and the ticking through, you know, the policy stuff. If the Republicans end up nominating somebody young and the Democrats end up nominating Biden, all these issues may fall away. All of this debate over, you know, who wants to sunset this and, you know, who wants to, you know, pass this bill. I think it all is going to fall away and it's going to really be about. Do we want a president who will be 86 at the end of a term or do we want to turn this country over to a new generation of people? And 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 and, it, and, and that will be the theme of the campaign. And it's not complicated and, it, you know, it doesn't take a long time to explain it. But that's what she was getting at. This is all dependent, of course, upon whether the Republican Party will nominate someone younger. And if they end up nominating Trump, it takes that argument off the table, which I think you know, is a huge detriment. I mean, it's obvious the Democrats are going to nominate Biden. The American people desperately want a new generation. Just give it to them. And and I thought that's what she was saying uh, in her rebuttal. She didn't mention Trump by name, but I, I thought that's what she was saying. He's for government control. At 40, I'm the youngest governor in the country. And at 80, he's the oldest president in American history. So, my only challenge with that, first of all, I think it's pretty obvious that they're different ages. I think you're, Scott, I think what you're saying is that they're, uh, you know, it, it was important for her to go ahead and underline, highlight, underscore, you know, do it amplify, you know, that 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 very stark age difference there. I, I just think it's more obvious. And my only concern just from an electoral standpoint, and you've done this, you know, you, you do this professionally, I'm just watching the outside, 
is that is there a you know generally speaking the older you get the more conservative you get and that's more republican is there a chance for alienating older americans who are more likely to vote if you continue to hammer home hey he's old he's old he's incompetent he's old uh, you know, I, I don't I, that's an interesting debating point. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I think it's worth watching, especially when you consider that Joe Biden did do better among older voters in 2020 than Democrats usually do. But I think even older voters, you know, sometimes recognize uh, that, you know, it, it, you know, there, there may be younger options out there to live. I mean, Joe Biden isn't, you know, just sort of old. He's old. I mean, he'll be 86 at the end of his term. And I just, I don't know. I mean, if he's going to pin all of his hopes and dreams on getting every 86 year old in the country to vote for him, I, you know, to me, that's not the, that's not the greatest political strategy. And, and I don't think anyone is arguing that, that elderly people don't have a role to play in our country, but in a country of, you know, hundreds of millions of people, you know, is this the right person to lead, to lead us? Uh, with everything we know about him. And the polling tells us that the American people don't want him to lead us. They don't think his policies are working. And you've got all these people out here that are under the age of 70 who think, yeah, I mean, there may be a there may be a younger option. I, I don't I don't perceive the danger in it because I see the utility in it from a you know, just from a debating point. We're the new generation. They're the old generation. Uh, and uh, and if you don't like what the old generation is giving us right now, try something new. That really does take a lot of the, you know, the jujitsu on policy off the table. And it, it may be worth sacrificing your point, Joe, in order to get to that. As we wrap up here, just one final note, Sean and Scott, and, and that is the Mitt Romney, George Santos uh, uh, back and forth. Apparently, when he told him to go to the back of the room, he didn't belong there because of obviously under ethics investigation. There is a gentleman named Jeff Smith, uh, uh, Scott, you know, from being on the Mark Reardon show with him in St. Louis. Um, and former uh, elected officer. It's a long story about his life, but he he's a Democrat. But I, I he he responded to the Romney Santos back and forth with I thought was speaking of adults in the room. Mitt Romney, the, the dad we hated at 15, grudgingly appreciated at 25, idolized at 45. In other words, the appreciation for Mitt Romney uh, among people of all political stripes. That's the one area that I could see last night with people kind of agreeing. Uh, for, Democrats love the fact that Mitt Romney was the adult, the adult in the room. You know what? The only for a lot of these Democrats, the only good Republican is either dead or defeated. Then all of a sudden, if you die or if you lose, all of a sudden, well, we appreciate you. You know, I've even heard Nancy Pelosi yearn for the days of George W. Bush. I mean, it, it, yeah. I just find, I just, I just find, I mean, look, it, in this particular case, Jeff is right. I mean, these Democrats uh, are right about Mitt Romney, and he's the most honest man in Congress. And he was dressing down the most dishonest man. But, you know, if you think about the way they portrayed Romney back in 2012, it was anything but who we knew he was at the time, an honest, moral person who was in politics for the right reasons. And they made him out to be some insane monster. And it was dishonest when they did it then. And now they want us to take their praise seriously. You know what? Keep it to yourself, man. You had your chance. You failed. Closing thoughts, Sean? I, just think that, <laughs> I like yeah, I like I, I like it. I like it that we're on an audio podcast without any video here. And and although we can see each other and Joe asked Sean for closing thoughts and Sean just shook his head silently. No, <laughs> that was, that was, that was, 
good. That was amazing. <laughs> no. I mean, you could have at least said no, as opposed to just silently. silently it's all good. Your- it's all good. <laughs> we- I just, amazing. Scott, I, 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 we, we, I think all of us are pulling for you. We hope that you can survive another day of in the in the lion's den. Yeah, man, I'm gonna go. Uh, uh, I'm gonna go do some more TV for the rest of the week. So we'll we'll see what the week brings. I mean, that'll be an interesting question here on public opinion. How quickly do we move off of this and start talking about other stuff again? I mean, you know, will it be? Oh, I think day? it's. It I think it's day? almost immediate. I think it's. I mean, I, it's a speech. It's. It, it, and to your point, because I mean, and I, I'm my final point will be just kind of repeating what you said, which is to say. This is this speech. Previous states of the union have been when, in fact, they have been an appeal to a different party to do something or for appeal for unity. And it truly that's sincere, whether it's after 9-11 or, or in, on health care or think of all the different things, because this was not intended to actually move anyone. I think I, th- I think we move on to it pretty quickly because it was just a it was a partisan speech and now it'll be over. We heard, we hear a lot of those. Yeah, even even during our coverage last night, you know, we broke into coverage to do a long report on LeBron James. I think we did it a couple yeah. of times in the hour. So you, you can see already, you know, the the appetite for you know other news is probably going to creep back in rather quickly. I mean, the Democrats, I'm sure, will have their cabinet and surrogates out around the country over the next couple of days doing message events. But these things are hard to sustain. You know, they come and go. For Sean Southern and Scott Jennings, I'm Joe Arnold. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. We'll see you next week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.